Ian, thank you very much. Am I, am I being heard? Yes, good. Um, I didn't have what you need to have. You need to have pockets or something, and I didn't have any of the things you need to make the microphone work, but uh, we'll manage. Now, I should tell you, I always tell people this, because I, it still amuses me so much, that I was once introduced in as Helena Kennedy, the lawyer who represents women and other criminals. <laughs> so I'm glad there's so many of you here today. Um, it's really delightful to be here, and I'm, I'm very honored that you asked me to be the person to speak um, on this great celebration that we have coming up on Saturday. Um, I will be spending it at the weekend at the South Bank, where there's a wonderful thing that happens in London in the South Bank Centre, which is the, the uh, WOW Festival, which is Women of the World. And it's, it's really um, a marvellous opportunity for celebration, but also learning. Um, and I, I always love it, and I always come away kind of feeling uplifted, but also feeling that I've kind of taken on board a whole lot of new stuff. And so if any of you get a chance, do go to it. But this is an opportunity always for reflection. I always uh, celebrate International Women's Day one way or another, usually because I'm asked to speak somewhere. But it is, it's always a moment for, for looking at, you know, where have we come from, how far have we come, you know, what are the gains we've made, but what, what are the ones that are still intransigent and, and how far have we still got to go. And it's also, you know, as well as looking at how things are here, really important that we are mindful of the, the situation that women are facing in other parts of the world, which, you know, are so often really, really dire. I've just come back recently from Iraq, and I was there um, looking at, um, I was the independent overseer of some uh, human rights programs that were set up after the withdrawal of occupation forces. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's so depressing that women, that there are so many widows, I mean, that's the first thing that, is sho that, that shocks you. And of course, not surprisingly, because they've, they've experienced a succession of wars, going back to the Iran-Iraq War or in the 80s, and then, and then through the, um, the Gulf War I, then Gulf War II, and then all this business of sectarian uh, violence and prior to that, militias and so forth. So it's been absolutely horrendous. And the women are so inspiring, and yet it's so hard for them. And, uh, and all those same things that we know about are rearing their, their heads. Um, back again to the business that girls are being pulled out of school really young, as soon as they reach puberty, basically to get them to be looking after uh, people in the family or to be married off. And they're seeing a great rise again in child marriage. They're seeing uh, a fall off in girls in education. Um, the women speak about the fact that because they have been uh, uh, involved in religious marriages, they have no certification to prove that they are in fact widows. And while there are small benefits that you sometimes can get as a widow, very often they're, they're, they're kind of denied any entitlements on the basis that they cannot prove that they were married because they didn't ever have state marriages. And that's something true in this country too, that often many of my clients, you know, I, I do, I've been involved in a number of cases in, in the recent wave of terrorism, the transatlantic bomb plot, you know, the, the blowing up, the, the attempt to blow up um, uh, blue water shopping mall, all those, those cases. A whole set of cases involving wives where they now arrest wives on the basis that they must have known what their husbands were doing. And the women are not actually married in state law, um, have gone through um, a, 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 um, a contractual marriage un with an imam. Um, but then, of course, are, are there, it is Sharia law that will apply to whether they'll get a divorce. I've just had a really um, hard business with one of my women that was acquitted, um, wants to divorce her husband. He's in jail for 35 years plus, and he won't divorce her. And we're having to see if we can find some imam who will recognize that if somebody's committed or was planning to commit mass murder, that it may make them somebody who might not be suitable for marriage or, or to... So, um, but, but these are the, the, the challenges that many of these women are facing around the business of women's rights and women's entitlements. And it's so wonderful to hear them talking about the fact that, that that sense that actually the fact that they have rights or that they might is something that they want to, to engage with. And uh, I met a whole set of women activists who were impressive on the business of trying to change what was happening in the reality of women's lives um, out there in Iraq. So it's a mess, but there are these things taking place which are um, a source of optimism. But 
I want to really take us back over the, the gains that we've made. The ambition has to be that women should take their place as equals um, in every facet of life. Um, and that, of course, remains unfulfilled. It's still not. Um, we still don't have equal pay. We still look around. And while we have the fabulous story of women in higher education now in equal numbers and in, in the professions and the training, when you look to the senior levels, there's still real problems around looking for women in positions of power and authority. And it's power that, that, that is one of those things that I always say uh, we have to keep our eye on that ball. Who is, has power? Where is power in our society? Where is it? Where does it lie? And, and how does one access it? And how, and how is it, um, how is it uh, used? And, and of course, that is one of the great determinants of people's lives. And, uh, and so we have to be very, as women and as men, be very conscious of the whole business about power. So despite the great expansion of women in higher education, and its education undoubtedly liberates us to a sense that we can take control over our lives, that we have choices, that we don't have to, as women did in the past, stay in relationships would be, which would be abusive because we have the means by which to, to, to earn our own livelihoods and all those good things, because we know that stuff. And we don't need to, to, to keep on about that. But the problem is that there is, what is it that kind of makes it impossible to go that extra mile? What is, the, what is happening that, 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 that is making it resistant? For me, of course, it all started back in the 70s when I became a young practitioner at the bar. And I wasn't a very traditional person going to the bar. I came from a big, you know, working class Irish Catholic family in Scotland. What was she doing at the English bar was the question. And, uh, and, and it, it sort of, you know, these things happen almost by accident. But then you look back and you think, perhaps not by accident. But I came to the bar as somebody who was very, very politically um, aware um, because of the nature of the family that I came from. But what I, I was conscious of things in class terms, but I was not conscious, particularly, of, of the whole business of patriarchy. That was something I learned about in the, in the 70s with the, that wave of, of, of feminism uh, taking place, and I was very much part of the women's movement. And it meant that we started shining lights into institutions and places where light had not been shone before. And, uh, and of course, although I was only one of six, seven percent of women, um, who were qualifying and becoming practitioners at that time, um, and the numbers were very small, and you were very conscious of the fact that there were very few women. There were sets of chambers that said, we don't take women, because it was before the Sex Discrimination Act. Believe it or not, I am so old. And, uh, and, uh, and, and they said, we don't take women. Then we had the Sex Discrimination Act, having you know, taken to the streets and insisted that something had to be done. And so then they brought in the Sex Discrimination Act, and chambers said, women, we've got one. And, 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 and so, so, so you, we, we had this, you know, the battles continued, you know, to start moving it along and moving the bus along. And, and we often found that, we, that there was resistance, and even resistance from some of the few senior women that there were, because, you know, they hadn't ever thought about the fact that they were in a profession that was completely dominated by men, and therefore perhaps the way we were expected to be was to also see the world through those same eyes. And what the women's movement in the 70s did, for all of you who are too young to know about it, well, what it did was it gave us a new way of seeing. And, uh, and so as I started practicing and going into the courts, um, my practice was very much as a civil liberties lawyer. Um, and I started, and I also was doing a certain amount of cases, but basically for the most disadvantaged folk in society. And what you started realizing was that on the number of times that you represented women, that there were special considerations. Now, Women don't make up the largest number of people coming before the criminal courts, and that was where I was practicing. Um, it's men, by and large, um, who come before the criminal courts, even to this day, um, you know, proportionately. Um, um, it's it's far, far and, and away men who are being, being tried, and that's by being how my practice is, except that I have done, probably disproportionately, a large number of the women who've come before the courts. But by representing women, you started noticing certain things. You, first of all, if you were representing women who had been um, at the receiving end of domestic violence or anything of that sort, and, and they were trying to get justice in the courts, and you were acting for them, trying to get injunctions against their, their abusive partners, how hard it was, because there was a resistance to believe that it could really be true that a woman would stay in a relationship in which she was abused. 
there was a sort of failure to understand the dynamics and the psychological um, uh, things that are happening in a relationship, which disempower women so much and so psychologically frees women. Never mind the absence of resource, but actually the way in which it impacts uh, psychologically on women is it becomes almost impossible to leave. But also all that shame and all that other stuff was just never understood by the courts. So um, without understanding what the problems were here, that it was really about the fact that law was man-made. And it wasn't, you know, this, you know, you didn't have to be somebody who knew about or understood or believed in the notion of patriarchy. You just had to recognize the fact that the senior judiciary didn't have women in it. That, uh, the, the, in fact, in the senior positions in, in the academy, um, where jurisprudence often would be explored and sometimes invoked in cases when one, one was in court, in the Court of Appeal, there, there weren't women in those senior roles here either. And there weren't women in Parliament in senior positions. And of course, that's the other lawmaking source. So in all the ways in which law can be made and contribution be made to the making of law, women were absent. And so that the perspective of women was never in there. And so the, if you like, the subject at the heart of law was male. The man on the Clapham omnibus, I mean, you know, it was, it was, it was conceived around a male performer, a, a male was at the center of it. And so often, you see, it didn't work for women. And as I was practicing, I was seeing that more clearly as I was going into court. And, uh, and there were a number of other things that became more and more clear to me, which was that often if women had failed and had broken the law, there were ways, and, you know, yes, there were some times when they, they got the benefit of, of you know, a sort of sensitivity towards their femaleness. I mean, it was... Uh, um, uh, seen as being some sort of great display of courtesy and caring. Um, but more often than not, if a woman was involved in anything that was considered inappropriate for a woman, she drew down something more than just the, the horror of the criminal law. There was something about her failure as a mother, as a wife, as a proper woman, that's, that, that, that kind of was present in the courtroom, but unspoken. And, and sometimes not even unspoken, sometimes it was spoken. And that we had to deal with the stereotyping of women, um, that if women didn't fit into certain kinds of slots about how they conducted their lives, the protection of the law was much more absent. And you, you, know, you know all this because of, around the business of, of you know, be a prostitute and, 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 and try to bring a rape case in the criminal courts, and you've had it. And let me tell you, prostitutes are raped more than any other grouping of women. And so, and, are, and prostitutes too, of course, are entitled to, to, to say, no, I'm not prepared to do that. I don't want to do that. And, uh, and, and yet they're frequently abused and battered um, and, uh, and subjected to rape. Yet the system doesn't really work for them. And so what I was becoming aware of was something that is now very familiar. It's entered into the mainstream, but at that time certainly wasn't. And I started writing about it, and I started appearing on, on Women's Hour and being interviewed about it. And, um, and uh, I suppose I was really amongst the judiciary deemed to be that woman. And, uh, and so uh, um, for quite a long time, it was, a, it, was, it was really about pushing at barriers that were very, very resistant. But of course, with all good things, you know, suddenly you start finding that, uh, that you know, things do move into the mainstream, and there is an acceptance, but it takes, it takes its time. But what happened then was that I remember that we started off arguing that we wanted equality and that we therefore, you know, as good sort of, you know, liberal Democrats, we were saying the way to do that is to treat us all um, equally. And, uh, and then, of course, the hard learning came that actually treating as equal people who are not equal does not create equality. And it was one of the painful lessons of actually going into court and I remember distinctly on one occasion, a judge saying to me, Miss Kennedy, you are regularly, I've heard you myself, expounding on the, the importance of equality between men and women, and I'm going to treat you, woman, equally to any man, and she's going to jail for exactly the same length of time as any man would. You might say, well, what's wrong with that? Except that she was a woman who was the mother of four children, and she was the primary carer of those four children, and all she was being convicted of was theft, shoplifting. So sometimes you actually, in order to do justice, you actually have to look beyond 
And, uh, and in trying to do what is right, you have to see what the reality of people's lives are. And I felt increasingly that the courts had to really make their, their, their view go beyond the courtroom doors. If you were going to do justice in courtrooms, you had to um, look beyond and understand well the context from which your clients were coming before the courts. And it became my kind of, if you like, um, sort of driving force in, in how to conduct cases. It was about contextualizing, about making sure that the court knew why people were in the situations that they were in. So neutrality didn't work for us. And, uh, and then we began to argue in, in different ways. And I always remember being here at Oxford, listening to a lecture. I, wasn't, I wasn't, didn't study here, but I came down because um, people that I knew told me about uh, Ronnie Dworkin. And I came and I heard Ronnie Dworkin talking about uh, treatment as equals, as distinct from equal treatment. The equal treatment is not always the deliverer of the stuff that we want. But what we want is that people are treated as equals. And I think that's one of the things that's at the heart of human rights. So in my own lifetime, I've seen the, all these issues in which I've been engaged around violence against women, the ways in which women are, 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 um, have difficulties in sort of having their voices heard within the system. All of that has been greatly helped by the, the coming into, um, the, the, you know, the drawing of the European Convention of Human Rights into English law. And so we should strongly resist any of these attempts that are being made to try and uh, cut us off from the European Court of Human Rights. It's been actually a very important um, and powerful um, source of change, certainly in the lives of women. But Ian posed the challenge to me, which was, are there things that we can learn from those years? And there are things that we can learn. Because sometimes, you know, it's the law of unintended consequences. When we sought to make change for women, sometimes it did have consequences that weren't too terrific. And, and I'll give you two of them. I kept campaigning very hard with other women uh, to, to change the law around um, domestic violence and, uh, and the problems that there were there, which was that often women were unwilling to testify against their husbands. They would be leaned upon by relatives and so forth. They were full of shame and, 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 and misery about admitting that they were in a violent relationship. And so increasingly, there were problems about you know, getting these cases into court. And also, they took, it took forever. You have to go for an injunction, and you had to make a civil action against the partner or husband, and then uh, attach the injunction proceedings to it. It was a just how things were in the law back in the, in the 70s and early 80s. And so we argued for a change in, in the, the, the law to introduce into the magistrate's court a sort of hybrid. And the hybrid would be that um, the court, on the evidence of a police officer arriving and seeing a smashed plate and food running down the wall and a woman with a kind of red eye, um, uh, would bring a case and, uh, and, uh, and listen to the neighbors saying that we heard what they could hear through the walls and so forth. And then uh, an order would be made, a court order in the magistrate's court, and it, it often would be to say that the husband had to stay away. And, uh, and if he breached the order, that he could be imprisoned um, for the breach of the order. And we thought it was a rather snappy, smart, quick way of getting some justice for women. And it was ameliorative, you know, make, you know trying to do this as a temporary thing, but to try to kind of put a, a kind of, you know, uh, a stop on the high levels of cases that there were that, were, that just couldn't get into the courts. It was the mother of ASBOs, control orders, and a whole set of other orders which were about creating a hybrid in our system which was a lowering of standards. And it's so interesting that we tried it, you know, we wanted it because we wanted women who were not getting justice to have some kind of system created that worked for them. But by doing it, we handed to the Home Office this gift, which was they thought, oh, I like that. And then they started using it in uh, much more sort of traditionally criminal cases, where they would make an order against somebody, you breach the order, and then you go to jail, not for the offense that, they really, uh, that they're really interested in and it's done on a lower standard of proof. And so 
we ended up as with ASBOs, with huge numbers of young people, boys particularly, in their teens, but girls as well, in you know, being jailed for breaching uh, um, ASBOs, antisocial behaviour orders, hanging around street corners, going to places where they were given an order not to be going to a certain neighbourhood, and they breach it, and then they would be um, given a, a breach of order um, in uh, custody. And so, we st we, for a period, it was really quite a worrying, worrisome thing. And now there's been a kind of rationalising of it and it's a pulling back from it. But it does show you, and you do learn from it, that sometimes one's inventiveness can be actually captured by um, the, others for less honourable purposes. And in the same way, I feel, to some extent, this has happened around the business of victimhood. But we were really pushing very hard to have an understanding of, of the ways in which the system failed victims of rape, of, of uh, child sexual abuse children, um, the ways in which uh, um, victims were often the people who were put on trial and expected to you know, withstand really the sort of cross-examination that people would give to police officers who were bent. You know, and it was really hideous to watch. And, uh, and so we started arguing for far better um, um, protections for witnesses in the courts and that the procedures would be better. And I have no, uh, I don't resile from any of that because the system has been poor and is still not good on dealing with um, people who are the complainants in cases. But the problem is that it's sort of become an excuse for government that whenever they want to do anything that is uh, kind of reducing um, uh, principles that we actually know work within the system, they use victims as the excuse. So they will say, we're going to lower standards in certain cases. It's as if the cake is sort of, you know, finite. And therefore justice, you know, to get justice for women in rape cases, the only way to do it is to reduce uh, somehow the justice that there are and the protections that there are for those who might be on trial. And I've never believed that. I, I really feel very strongly that you have to maintain protections within the system and you have to make sure that they're there and that lowering standards, you can be damn sure if we did it in the area of rape, it would be tomorrow be all over the whole of the, the criminal justice system. And it's one of the ways that we as citizens are safeguarded against state power. But, um, but it is interesting that, that it's been one of the reasons I am absolutely sure that we have seen such a huge increase in people in prison and so on, because the, 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 the victims were used as the rationale for many of the most reactionary um, positions taken up by, you know, and not just this government, the Labour government was particularly um, uh, 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 made use of this kind of um, rhetoric around victims and using victims to cut back on all kinds of things. They're even using it now uh, to justify cutting legal aid, that they want money to go towards uh, victims. Well, you, you, there's going to be even more victims with the absence of legal aid. So my experience in, in, in the UK has been that we have made huge differences, and yet still the problem, particularly around violence and sexual violence, um, it's very, very difficult to deal with within, within the courts, and we have not cracked that. And, and, and offences in, you know, in the area of intimacy, but which are abuse of intimacy, um, particularly where people know each other, are very, very hard to deal with in the courts. Now, there are other things that have happened, of course, too, and it, and it reflects on our world much, more, much wider. The debates that there are now taking place, and I think this is the answer to the question that Ian poses, which is, what are the lessons to learn? And I think the lessons to learn are that, we, that, that you know, principles within legal systems are really very important. But the most important things are that you have to have an independent judiciary, that you have to have lawyers who feel independent and who are fearless and who are going to be prepared to take on the state um, and not be fearful of the hand on the shoulder or, or worse. And when I go now doing um, uh, work in, in, in other countries, it's one of the things that, that you know, is, is hard because you, you, you know that those women in Iraq or women in, in, in all sorts of places that I've been to um, over the last few years, um, the systems don't exist for them to actually be able to, to um, you know, secure their rights because the courts aren't there or within the courts there aren't the, the, the levels of commitment to women's rights that will deliver them the justice that they're seeking. And so uh, all the things that we had to confront ourselves here in Britain are, are problems being confronted in other systems around the world. There's nothing, all legal systems, 
I, I have to tell you, are all um, based on the same problems, which are how they were came into being, the absence of women's experience in those systems, and how you shift people away from patriarchal ideas about appropriate womanhood and how you contain women, and how then how women can secure justice. And a lot of it is going to be about supporting and strengthening the rule of law in fragile democracies. One of the great things, of course, of the 20th century was that at the beginning of the 20th century, you know, even here in Britain, there wasn't the vote for women. Uh, there wasn't universal suffrage. By the end of the 20th century, the kind of burgeoning of democracies around the world was quite cons considerable if we're to measure democracy being people being able to vote for those who were to govern them. Um, we saw uh, you know, it, the proliferation in Eastern Europe. Uh, um, we saw it in uh, Latin America, the end of totalitarian regimes. South Africa, places that we all had spent our time, our youth uh, uh, demonstrating about. And then we see the problems. And the problems are that the rule of law has been sort of kind of neglected in the creation of new democracies. And that even where you are mindful of law, that the people who are uh, peopling the courts um, are often still fearful because they've, they've, they've breathed in that sense that somehow they're part of the government apparatus, um, how hard it is for them to feel that they can take it on, how difficult it is for judges uh, who are leery about the consequences of making decisions in certain ways. And it happens in Russia, it happens uh, all over Eastern Europe, um, and, and governments in Hungary recently uh, get rid of judges when they don't think that they're doing the right thing. Um, and it's why the independence of the judiciary is so important. So none of this stands on its own. It's all of a piece. Um, and it's all about human rights. But one of the great things that has happened, and I think that it's really been, particularly in the last 10 years, is that the idea that abuse of women, that women's rights are human rights, has really kind of become part of, increasingly part of the agenda. Um, but still, women are not at the tables of power. You know, when the G8 and the G22 meet, you know, it will be Angela Merkel and, you know, I don't know who else. But the absence of women in those places which are peacemaking, which are deal-making, which are, you know, trying to make treaties and so on, where are the voices of women? And, uh, and it's been very difficult, to, struggling to make sure that those issues, like ending violence against women around the world, get onto that, uh, onto that list of high priority subjects. And yet, until that ends, we will never see uh, um, equality. While women are abused and experiencing violence, there is no equality. And we have to remember that. So um, lots of important and interesting things happening and have been happening. But the real challenges, are, as I see them into the future, are around issues like universality. That whole idea that we have, that human rights are universal. Is that true? And, the, and there's a discussion that we have to have about it. Because, of course, different cultures have to be respected, um, and one wouldn't want it to be otherwise. But is it acceptable that in, 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 uh, in a culture or in a religion that the, a woman's testimony might be worth half that of a man? Um, is it right? that we should think that it was that in a divorce process that a woman should have her boy children taken away from her at the age of when they reach the age of 7 because she's not an appropriate person to rear her boy children i mean there are some of those things that have to be talked about um, in our wider world and we often uh, i'm afraid in those international discussions uh, shy away from them um, there are some things that we have to discuss, like we're now seeing discussed in a way that hasn't been for many, many years, the business of FGM. Um, I've taken part in so many discussions over the last 20 year odd years. I've been to Ethiopia. I've gone to those villages. I have, you know, the law in Ethiopia is very clear that there shouldn't, that FGM is, is forbidden. It's unlawful. Um, and yet, of course, it, ha it continues with impunity. And uh, child marriage continuing. Um, children, girls of 13, impregnated, then giving birth, their little bodies unable to, 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 to do the business. 
and then they're having fistula, tears in their um, uh, vaginas, tears through into their, into their uh, rectum, and their lives are, are, are they're rejected from their families because of, of, of how they're constantly leaking and, uh, and the misery of it. Um, and yet, it's all to do with um, being married off too young, um, being uh, circumcised, losing their sexuality when they're still so young. So we're now talking about it, but it's only a few years ago, let me tell you, that we had a case that was conducted um, by lawyers in my chambers um, that went all the way to the Supreme Court. And it was a case of a young woman who did not want to go back to Sierra Leone because her family had been here as asylum seekers, things changed, and they were going to return, and she didn't want to accompany them because she did not want to experience FGM. And uh, she went before the courts, and the court said um, uh, that she wasn't entitled to asylum on that ground. There was this great anxiety, the Daily Mail obviously being behind it, that uh, there was a great rush of thousands of women rushing to Britain's shores um, uh, to take advantage of asylum on this basis. I mean, there should be, but, but, but uh, unfortunately it wasn't the case. But the, re the, the rationale of the Court of Appeal was very interesting. There were two men on the court and one woman. And the two men on the court came to, a, and it was a majority decision, was that she couldn't get asylum. And the reason that they gave was because the majority of the women back in Sierra Leone accepted FGM and agreed with its practice as a practice. And, and it was the woman on the court, Mary Arden, who gave the, the dissenting opinion. And it's why it's so important to have a diverse judiciary and to have a discourse around some of these issues that's different. It went to the Court of Appeal, and again, it was Brenda Hale, the one judge in our Supreme Court, who led the argument about why it is that women in some communities will consent to their own subjugation and what it is that makes that possible, the hegemonic ideas of patriarchy that keep these things in place. And, uh, and it was a learning process, because I've discussed it now with some of the male judges in that court, to think that one through. And, uh, and the young woman was granted asylum. And it has not led to a great rush, because unfortunately, the hegemonic power of believing that this is the right thing for girls to experience, and it's what makes for proper women, is something that continues in so many of those North African societies. Now, so the, the issue of universality and a dis proper discussion around that, are there universal human rights? For me, it seems obvious that it's about our humanity, the things that make us flourish as human beings, but the things that we know do not make us flourish as human beings, that to suffer and to be degraded and humiliated or to feel pain, um, all those things that we know diminish us as human beings. And I don't think it gets too difficult in working out what those things are. I've recently sat as the chair of an inquiry in Scotland into trafficking. And I, can't, I thought I'd heard it all. But I can't begin to tell you about the, the levels of degradation that some of the women had to describe. And how long it took them to get to a place where they felt safe enough to be able to talk about it. Um, and yet we expect people arriving in this country, um, if if, you know, if, if, if the police arrive, on, uh, in, at a, arrive at a household where women are being kept who have been trafficked, if you're not going to disclose fairly quickly, 45 days is the, is the time. Originally, it was just immediately. Now they've given a, a bit of license, and they say within 45 days, you have to give your account of trafficking, or you're not likely to be believed. Um, and the culture of dif disbelief means that if a woman slowly gaining confidence is able to give voice to all the things that happened to her, the fact that it wasn't in the first statement that she made will be used as a way of suggesting that she's elaborated and invented uh, subsequent um, uh, continuums of her story. So we don't deal with many of these things fairly. And uh, all I want to say is that we have many challenges ahead of us. But I don't want us to stop celebrating today because there are things to celebrate. And one of the great things to celebrate for me is that we're seeing again a rise of a new generation of young women who are saying, no, it's not good enough. And they're joined by so many men who are saying, no, it's not good enough. And it's together that we're going to solve these problems. 
and it's with men as at our sides who are going to be able to say to uh, men who are abusing, this can't go on. And so we have reason to celebrate, and I hope that we will do so on Saturday, and we'll do, to, do so up until Saturday, and I want to thank you all for inviting me here today. Baroness Kennedy, thank you uh, so much for an inspiring uh, talk uh, as you give voice to the voiceless um, through the courts, uh, judicial system, and of course in the Lords, um, where you're very engaged in debates. And globally, uh, we wish you uh, all power uh, in, in advancing that. But it was extremely helpful to, in trying to understand uh, both what's been achieved, but how much further we still have to go and the Oxford Martin School is about the big challenges of the 21st century. This is certainly amongst those biggest. Uh, we've got time for questions and answers. There's a roving mic there. This is being recorded and webcast, so if you would not like to be recorded or webcast, I suggest you don't ask a question. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, the, the woman. Thank you, Heather Gravy from the um, Open Society Foundations. Baroness Kennedy, you pointed out how much uh, the women and indeed the men of this country um, owe to the European Court of Human Rights in advancing um, women's rights, but also a whole range of others. Um, and also the proud tradition Britain has on rule of law, independence of the judiciary. But at the moment, there's an extraordinary political attack going on on exactly that infrastructure, with ministers um, threatening to withdraw from the European Convention on Human Rights um, for this country, which helped to set up the system, um, and indeed uh, ministers complaining about unelected judges making judgments. How outrageous is that? Yeah. What's the right response to this when, I mean, you know, there are newspapers that are pursuing it, but how do you get people to understand how important this infrastructure is and, and how, what's the best way of protecting it against a political attack? It's really, it's, 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 a, it's a really important question and it's a hard one because um, one of the things that I think is, is a source of regret for me is that when the um, Human Rights Act was created in 1998 but came into force in 2000, I think we should have put much more energy into explaining wh why it was such an exciting and wonderful opportunity for us, about, having, about conducting ourselves in a different way, which was about mutual respect and so on. I mean, obviously, it's the state that, has, that carries the responsibilities, so that, so that you, know, um, it, you know, it came out of that idea, which was about a sort of new wave of rights after the Second World War, saying, you know, sometimes um, persecution is not from the state, you know, that was the, that was the easy bit to, to recognise, but sometimes it comes from your next door neighbour. Sometimes it, co becomes, it comes from the people who live in the same street as you, if you are in a minority. And it was about how democracy needs other things to leaven democracy, to make it um, more just, and that you can't just have majoritarianism. And I'm afraid that newspapers like the Daily Mail speak to that ugly majoritarian in, you know, impulse and, uh, and not um, uh, out of concern for ways in which our society can be enriched by caring for, looking after, ensuring that people are, have safeguards. And so it, it was always um, a fear, I think, when Labour um, introduced the Human Rights Act, they were worried that, that, you know, were they going to be accused of being the, you know, the defenders of prisoners, immigrants, you know, Roma, you know, everybody that would, that, that would you know, that was claimed would make use of it. But what we also know, and the stories that are never told by the popular press, is that it's been used by, uh, in cases, to protect the position of the elderly, it's been used all over Wales. Some of some parts of the United Kingdom, you see, don't have the resistance because they're not quite in the, that sort of in the same sort of Daily Mail readership zone. But in, in places like Wales, for example, um, they've used the the Human Rights Act and the European Convention to enhance children's rights. They've really done uh, you know things that we could learn from. They were first in there with a the, uh, children's ombudsman. Um, and so they've really done s some interesting things. And they're now looking at doing the same things around um, protections for the aged. Um, that, that, 
you know, it, when, I, when I, I was one of the people who was on the commission that was set up to look at whether there should be a British Bill of Rights, I was the one who had to sort of, sort of put my hand up and say, well, first of all, I was the only woman on this commission. Um, and, uh, and I had to point out that, in fact, that calling it the British Bill of Rights might not be very useful if we were having a conversation in Northern Ireland or even at this moment in time in Scotland, that the United Kingdom was, was a better way of talking about it. But when we went, traveled around the, to take evidence, it was so interesting that you went up to Scotland and they, lo they loved, they have it as, not as the Human Rights Act, but as the Scotland Act. They love the incorporation of the European Convention and there isn't the same kind of horror of it. You go to uh, Wales and it's been used creatively to actually go further and expand rights. And particularly for you know, the old and the young, as I was saying. Um, in Northern Ireland, it's still highly contentious, but by God, if there's a place that needs it, than it is in Northern Ireland. And so, you know, to, to be denigrating it is extraordinary. And especially when it has done so much for victims. <laughs> you know, it really has been a tool which we in the courts who have been concerned about the position of victims have been able to use it to argue that, 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 that victims too have human rights and have to not be um, subjected to certain kinds of experience in the courts. So it's, it's just amazing to me the way in which this has been conducted. Part of it is fueled by anti-European -Europe, you know, feeling. You know, it's, it's, it's part of something else. My fear is that this is a bit of red meat that might be thrown to the Eurosceptics, because there's no way you'd have to be completely mad. These always are coalitions, and one bit of your party, never mind the coalition with the Liberal Democrats, the coalition with your, your, your own right wing, who are fearful of UKIP, you are going to have to find something to throw uh, to that section of your party. And my fear is that pulling away from the European uh, Court on Human Rights might be one of them. Now, the, you know, the European Court of Human Rights is not perfect either, but none of our courts get it right all of the time. Our Court of Appeal in the former case about FGM got it wrong. The majority got it wrong, and it was corrected. But it's interesting to me that, that you know, there's a sort of, you know, authoritarians don't like an independent judiciary because independent judiciaries criticise governments. And, uh, and so, you know, Labour did it too, I'm afraid. David Blunkett um, was always, uh, you, know, uh, you know, megaphoning through the Daily Mail his, uh, his objections to judicial decisions, particularly in relation to um, immigration and asylum, because he thought it was a populist platform. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, but thank you for asking that question. I think we have to champion it and defend it. Thanks very much, Heather. Um, yeah. Hello, thank you. I wondered if you could um, perhaps comment on um, well, my perception that we've talked about the successes of women um, historically, but I'm also conscious that when we talk about, in England, when people talk about um, uh, women's rights and refer to women of colour, it's usually women abroad who need help. And I'm interested in what happens in this country around women of colour who don't necessarily need help in that way but might actually need help to um, progress in the workforce and in the workplace. So for instance, um, the research suggests that women uh, who are in positions of power quite often support other women but because most of their friends are white women like themselves, quite often what happens is they replicate themselves rather than widening the yeah. spectrum. And I wondered if you could comment on those things. Yes, I, I, think, I think that's an, an interesting area too. First of all, on the business of do we always think of you know, um, uh, women abroad, you know, you know, women of colour being or ethnic minorities, you know, we're really thinking of abroad or something. Um, when, in fact, we live in an incredibly diverse society, and I think it should be one of our sources of pride how vitally uh, different um, and varied our society is. And, uh, I, but I work very closely with lots of fantastic South Hall Black Sisters, um, Newham Women's, uh, um, uh, women's Group, um, uh, lo lots of groups around London and outside of London, up in Bradford and places, where there are really active, fabulous women from ethnic minority groupings who are struggling on all the same issues as, as, as any other woman. But they've got additional ones. 
they are having to combat things like immigration rules, which are, are, have often been particularly detrimental to women, you know, brought from Pakistan, then abused by a young man in Britain who doesn't want to be marrying some girl from a rural village in Pakistan, and, and, and continues having girlfriends, but he's been, he's been forced to marry by his parents. And then the girl is wretched and miserable, and, and sometimes experiences uh, domestic violence. And, uh, and we had to struggle very hard to, to provide her with protections because if a marriage failed, um, she was sent back home. And the implications of that for those women was hellish because they were rejected, they were, they were sent back, and, uh, and uh, um, uh, often you know, their, their life wasn't going to be very um, wonderful on return to, to, to their families back in, in Pakistan or Bangladesh or wherever. So, so sometimes there are issues that you need to have highlighted by, by particular groups. Honour killing. Um, it's wonderful, for example, just now that the FGM campaign is being led by young women, Somalian women, and not by you know, other people as their advocates, but they, they are you know, taking charge. And, and those are, that's always when things are most effective. But I do want to pick up on your thing about, um, and so I think there are problems. I do want to pick up on your thing about cloning. <laughs> Because it is a kind of cloning. And we always used to complain about it in relation to men. The idea that men appointed people in their own image and likeness, and that was why women didn't get in. And I think you're right that there, that there is a risk that women trying to be enablers might do the same thing. That it's always much easier to see a woman who reminds you of you when you were young and to kind of nurture that, um, that whatever that, that is that you recognize. And I think that's a human thing. I think that is what people do. I always remember Emma Nicholson, who was a conservative MP before she crossed over to the liberal benches. She, she told me in the early 90s when I said to her, why has why the John Major government not promoted women? We, know, we understood why Margaret Thatcher didn't, but why hasn't John Major, who's a, a decent man? And she said, she said, because men talk up other men. And, and that was her experience at the time, was that you know, she wasn't getting talked up by anybody. She didn't have a champion. And she said, it is that thing she described about recognizing things about yourself in, in a young man. But I think that that sort of thing is breaking down. And I like to believe for myself that I'm not, um, I don't make those kind of distinctions as between um, black women and white women. But I, I can see there's a risk of it. Um, and I think that we should be absolutely clear and be seeking to empower um, women to, one of the things that I always noticed about coming to Oxford, I have to tell you, is the absence at undergraduate level, certainly, of black people, of black students. And let me tell you, in, I've been the, the, the president of SOAS and other universities, um, I, was, I was chancellor of Oxford Brooks, and it is, it is an interesting thing that, you know, Afro-Caribbean women do, you know, are coming to universities in big numbers. Why aren't we getting any of them here? And I think that there, there are issues about why we aren't able to reach out better and more effectively to certain communities. And, uh, and maybe there's some of that stuff in there. But I do want to also just mention something else that was drawn to my attention yesterday by a woman trade unionist in the House of Lords who said that there is suddenly a surge of women being sacked um, because of pregnancy. And people are actually being prepared to do it because recession works in a way to women's disadvantage. So although women have got into the workforce, when things get tough, it, it, often it's women who, 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 uh, who suffer the consequences. Um, I want to mention one other thing about workforces. One of the exciting things about some of the work that's been done on globalization for women is that, you know, on the one hand, bad, that women are working in factories where they're exploited and paid very little, and then the factory falls on their heads, as in Bangladesh, and, 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 and the horror story of that, and the shame of international corporations and their role in it. But one of the interesting things is that work being done by women academics with women in Indonesia and different parts of the world is that when women go out to work, the liberation of it is incredible. They learn about, the, about contraception, they learn about uh, um, ways of being independent financially and about throwing off um, abusive relationships. And often being in the workforce, even if it's a horrible exploitative workforce, has liberating consequences for many women. So, you know, we have to see good things in some of the things that are happening that are not so great. Okay, let me just see a, a show of hands so you get a sense of how quick we've got to go through it. Um, I'm just going to, so Clara doesn't have to run up and down, take, come from the back. <laughs> 
Um, I have a question that has to do with uh, privatization in the judicial system. My example, and its effect on women, my example comes from Canada. We've just seen the Harper government implement, um, start to build mega prisons, like mall-sized prisons, and one of the tactics in which they are, and privatize them, so they're, they're operated by companies. So one of the ways that they're <coughs> being filled is by introducing lower mandatory sentencing, jail time, which disproportionately affects, in Canada, women, and specifically women of color, indigenous women, who are going to crimes for uh, possessing drugs, for sex worker-related, communication-related charges. <coughs> and the majority of them are, are mothers and, and grandmothers. So I wanted to, I know that in the UK, you have the, the Campsfield House and potentially other privatized uh, prisons, uh, immigration removal centers. I wanted to know if you could comment on, on the privatization of parts of the digital system and um, mandatory minimum sentencing. I feel very, very strongly that there are some parts of our world that should not be uh, subject to the market. I don't think it's appropriate. I don't think it's appropriate to have privatization when it comes to prisons because they're our, all of our responsibility. And I just feel that the idea that, uh, that, that there's any question of profitability to be made um, from our incarcerating people is one of the most, I think, disfiguring things in our society that can, that can be going on. It really is hideous. And, and, and bad things come out of it because I think that, that um, um, often, you know, we, we get uh, reports done, um, you know, that are pro provided almost like um, corporate brochures um, about uh, things that happen in prisons and programs that take place and so on. And many, many times it's really not truthful. Um, that the, the people are not, you know, because it's, it's a comfort to judges to imagine that sending somebody to prison is going to solve their drug problem. Um, you know, as social services are being reduced, then the, 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 the challenge for judges is what do you do with people who are really coming before you because of incredible social problems? For example, women, the majority of women in prison have experienced at some point in their life being abused, either as children or they've been battered by partners, or exploited sexually, or whatever. And, uh, and the amount of um, uh, um, dependence on drugs and alcohol, all, you know, 60 or percent. The number of women in prison who are mothers of children is 65 percent. So, you know, I mean, it's just unbearable, the idea that we're doing this. And it's part of the whole kind of, I think it's part of, a, you know, rather than it being a conspiracy to let's send more people to prison in order to um, pump up the profits of the, of the companies, I do think it's part of the thing of the market seeping into places where markets are not appropriate. And I think, I believe that of the justice system. And I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's really important that, that there should be more public debate about that because prisons are, are far from sight and people don't see it. And um, um, I think it's a, a source of shame in our country that in the last 20 years, we've seen a doubling of women in prison. And I made a program about it for the BBC recently um, because I wrote a book in the early 90s called Eve Was Framed. You can imagine why that was. And, uh, and so this was Eve at 21 and uh, coming of age. And, um, and the bad story, particularly bad story in, all of, in, in reviewing what has happened and how much had changed was that this business of women, more women in prison. Now, it's not that there's been a rash of women suddenly taken to crime in a great way and saying, you know, here's a niche market for us, let's get into crime. You know, it's just, it's just not like that. And they're all in there for ridiculously, um, I mean, usually often drugs related, but low level stuff. There are very, there's a few, small cadre of women who are there for serious crime. And you have to ask yourself, why? Why has that happened? And part of it is that judges feel under pressure. They're being viewed much more by um, the media and are excoriated if they're considered to be too lenient. And they, and they also, the, the, there are some who, for example, think they're treating women equally to men because society is now equal. And so they, 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 they do the very thing that I mentioned um, when I was uh, addressing you. And they also um, think that women are going to get treatment in there and help. And, be, and, and I have a nice time, you know, and get social work. And I'm afraid that doesn't happen. Prisons are not nice. Okay, um, Clara, if you come down this way. Uh, over here. 
Thank you very much for a very interesting uh, presentation. I appreciate it. And I have a question about the relationship between military intervention and women's rights. Um, I'm from the United States, and I was opposed to the, the Gulf War and, uh, and had, had certainly considerable questions about our intervention in Afghanistan. But I've always, in my own naive way, taken some solace in the fact that I assume that those interventions actually have some benefit to women in those countries. Um, that, in fact, uh, the media attention on uh, Afghan women's plight uh, might be beneficial to them in the long run. So could you comment on the relationship, and do you see that silver lining, or is, am I being naive in seeing that myself? Well, you know, I mean, we, we scratch around looking for solace, <laughs> and, I, and I admire you for wanting to do that. So um, let's not ever give up being glass half-full people. Um, and, um, um, and it is true. I mean, I, I, one of the things is that, you know, it always amuses me that suddenly people who were not the least bit interested in women's rights in Afghanistan suddenly became great champions of women's rights. Um, and, uh, um, and I think that, uh, uh, you know, energies are going in to trying to get girls back into school, which certainly didn't happen during the, under the Taliban. Um, that there are great women's projects going on. I've met some fabulous um, um, women who are going into politics who, who are, are Af Afghani women. But one of the problems is, my fear and anxiety is, what happens when, when um, troops withdraw? Because it doesn't seem to me that we've really kind of got under the belly of it. I mean, I don't really think that, um, um, I, I think that my fear is that we will see a revival of some of the uglier side of um, you know, Taliban-esque activity, and that women, women may continue to suffer for a very long time there. I, you know, um, but I, I like your spirit, and I will adopt it. Well, and interestingly enough, uh, Paul Wolfowitz, who of course was one of the architects of the Iraq War, uh, justified it to me as being for women. Uh, so it was very central to the ideology, at least of the fundamentalist <laughs> Well, he was with group. a good... He's now with a good feminist woman, so I, I, I suspect that she's helped him develop a theme on, uh, on why, why it might be okay. Thanks. Uh, hello, uh, good evening. Um, Joanna Foster, I, I really, really, um, it's good to be reminded of the achievements and very salutary to be reminded by you of the challenges, particularly with women around the world. Um, and you have been a great woman in championing the cause of women over well, many that's years. That's right, I chaired the Equal Opportunities Commission during the time in the 80s and 90s, and we put a huge amount of emphasis then on hundreds and hundreds of cases for women who were sacked because they were pregnant, yeah. with the trade unions solidly behind us, but also on family-friendly employment and flexible employment for men as well as for women. So it's very distressing that some of that is going backwards mm -hmm. at the moment. Uh, but one of the big issues for me in this country is the fact that the 10 years we spent trying to battle out the really difficult legislation on equal pay for work of equal value uh, is really not very helpful now, because if you look at, I wonder how many of you will go into the workforce, better degrees than possibly some of your male peers, and within years will have them being paid considerably more than you. So yeah. the equal pay issue and the real needs of women and keeping families and all of the things we know about, we used a huge amount of the European legislation. We worked through the European Commission, <coughs> and it worries me enormously at the thought that you know, there's everybody thinking we can do without it. I don't think people realize how much we owe in terms of social policy to what's gone on in Absolutely. other more liberal and enlightened organizations. Mm. So your views about where we are with Europe um, are terribly important and for us all to realize that too. And thank you very much for tonight. Aww. Sorry, no question. I want to ask a question. No, no, you don't, you don't have to ask a question because, because your experience is, is so important in all of this. Because the Equal Opportunities Commission was a really incredibly important and valuable organization. And actually, I do think, I do think it's, it, we've gone backwards in amalgamating all those different individual organizations. You know, there was the race relations uh, uh, organization, there was the equal, there was the, the, you know, the equal, the equal Opportunities Commission, which was dealing with women's, uh, you know, with, really with gender, but for men and women, and, uh, and the, a disability organization. And the, some of the distinctiveness, actually, by merging it all together, we've lost some of the power of that. Um, and I think it's diluted the strength of it in many ways, you know, and I, th I, th I think that's happening across civil society, ways in which everything, you know, it's as if it's all being solved and therefore it's all kind of, you know, being uh, um, 
um, put under the radar. And these issues are seriously back on board again um, about how women are suffering the consequences of, of recession. And the fact that, I mean, it's just unbelievable that in law firms in the city, uh, all over the place, you'll see that women are earning um, significantly less than their um, male colleagues. And of course, don't think of asking. Women often don't even think of asking what somebody else might be earning, you know? So. Okay. Anyone over here? Um, thank you very much, and thank you for talking about the importance of a courageous independent judiciary and also people being courageous in Parliament. And I first wanted to, to uh, thank you so much for speaking in the Lords um, over the last couple of weeks on the 28 days in immigration. Um, and I do want you to reflect on the immigration, um, both the bill that's going through and the whole um, sheaf of horrible laws we've seen mm. that have been passed. Um, and just on the women's issue on that and how it's actually affected women, I want to talk about, I, I come from the social care field myself, and I want to talk about what's happened in the private nursing homes since we privatized all the nursing homes. And they in, uh, encouraged people to come from abroad to take up, a lot of them women, a lot <coughs> of them well qualified, mm. with a lot of um, false expectations which meant that you would have come across yeah. as many cases as I have more probably of people who find themselves trapped in the middle of the countryside in a nursing home actually getting only something like a pound a week because the rest of it goes to the their employer um, for board and lodging which they hadn't understood was part of the deal they're not being given the training that they were expected and they have the fear of immigration yeah. being put over their heads. And yeah. I want you to reflect on the immigration law yeah. and courts and on why you felt that the 28-day um, trying to get a limit to indefinite detention, which we have at the moment for administrative reasons, was something you found yourself. Oh, I mean, I just, I think that, because I think these places, nobody's committed a crime. And, and people are then arrested and detained as if they were criminals. And, uh, and, uh, I think Jarl's would should be closed. I, I mean, the women that I have represented and, and, and met since and so on who've been detained in that place. Um, I was at an event um, uh, uh, the night before last for uh, young people, uh, unaccompanied minors, well, you know all this, unaccompanied minors, and you, it, it breaks your heart hearing, hearing the stories of these young people who often have seen their parents being mutilated and killed. And then they arrive here in this country, have managed some up by hook or by crook to get here. And then we, we treat them in the most appalling way and don't want to believe, you know, argue over, you know, are you old enough? Because we, because we have a duty in international law to provide asylum to people who've been persecuted, we then have the argument over, are you really a child? And all, all sorts of nonsense. Anyway, uh, the, the, I do want to pick up on your issue about um, one of the, the really hidden horrors of our current society and, and the way in which I think a kind of turbocharged capitalism has taken hold and what it's done to the values that I think are, are operating in our society is that um, when I was chairing the trafficking inquiry in Scotland, one of the reasons that it was brought, it, 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 an inquiry was sought by mainly women's organizations, it's fair to say, but also by um, some of the trade unions was around a number of, of, of problems was that there had not been prosecutions at all in Scotland. And so it was an Equality and, e and Human Rights Commission's um, endeavour, and I, was, I went up to do it, and they thought it was probably a good idea to have a Scot do it. <laughs> and so I went up, and um, it was very interesting, because the whole of the central belt of Scotland, great fruit-growing area, is now covered in plastic because instead of it just being a seasonal thing that happens, um, you know, in May or you know when raspberries, you know, come to fruit, um, it happens sort of almost the, the, even in Scotland with all our rain, with all our bad weather, we manage to pr produce these things almost most of the year. And uh, but of course, we need people to pick this stuff. We need people to be in the places where the fisheries are around the coast areas to be gutting fish. Uh, and the incredible thing was that the gang masters bring people in, and it still goes on. And we've created a gang master inspectorate, but now the government, the current government and its austerity, is 
taking money away from them, cutting them to the bone, actually tried to, to get rid of it altogether. Um, and the landowners in Scotland basically outsource it. You see, they're not the employer. The employer is the gangmaster. And so they then can wash their hands. They don't have any obligations, tax, insurance, none of those things. And then the people come and the gangmasters do exactly as you said. And so th that was all on fruit was most of the evidence that I was hearing. But it was also in care homes uh, because it's, it migrates. You see, once, because the, the, ins the inspectorate that was created was to deal with the food industry, agriculture and food. Um, and so, you know, places where they were dealing with, you know, battery chicken and stuff like that and people working in those factories. Horrible, you know, and being paid nothing. And then it's now migrating into service industries and into care homes and people being paid nothing. It's, it's, and they're frightened and they're fearful of what, the, what will happen to them. And of course, the story is, first of all, we've, we're promising you a job, and then they say, you're debt bonded, basically. They don't put it in that language, but you owe us for your fare coming over, you owe us for your accommodation, you owe us for the meager bit of food that we've supplied to you, and they charge them for everything, so they end up with, with almost nothing. And they're never, I mean, they're, they're, there's no way out. It was just ghastly. And so we, ha we have, I mean, the migrant labor issue is a very serious one in, in, these, in our nations, and we, we don't talk about it. And it is for profitability. It's about creation of high levels of profitability. And the other area that was shocking was domestic servitude of women. And I always, you know, we did in our chambers a number of cases involving, you know, the diplomatic, you know, people coming who were diplomats maybe from uh, countries where they'd, had, they'd bring their whole kind of retinue with them, and amongst them would be women from poor countries um, um, who were being employed by Saudi diplomats or whatever. And, um, and you'd find that they'd had their passport removed from them. They were, the story was that the payment was going to be made back in their place of origin and so forth. But what I found was that actually it was much wider than that. It was people who were, you know, people who'd come over, uh, ingenious and, and, and hardworking immigrants, set up a chain of restaurants eventually, and then they'd go back home and their families would say, take, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so back with you. She'll look after the children while you're working. And she sleeps on a mat in the kitchen, uh, you know, like it was back in Bangladesh. And she doesn't get any pay because the story is that her mother back in Bangladesh is being paid two and six in a green shield stamp, you know, nothing um, for all the labor that's put in. And these people work, you know, from dawn until after midnight at night. And then it's only when they manage to escape or something that you, f you find out about it. It was really shocking. And, uh, and I'm afraid there's stuff like that that's below the radar that nobody knows about and in many ways don't inquire about. So. Anyone else want to pose a question? Good. Well, it remains uh, for me to thank you, Helena, for a wonderful talk and response to the questions. Um, when I said that you were the best person I could think of in England to address us on International Women's Day, I should have, of course, said in the United Kingdom, <laughs> at, 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 the, at the very least. Um, but you, you are that, and um, we wish you well, and we thank you so much for spending your time say, with us. We're going we're gonna to do it. <laughs> Remember, that's what we have to say. With you in the lead, we will. Um, thanks so much to all of you for coming. I want to let you know about the forthcoming... forthcoming uh, events. Uh, so there's many things happening here as always. We're concluding our seminar series next Thursday at 3.30, uh, which has been about the relationship between man and machines, with Carl Frey and Michael Osborne talking about uh, whether machines will replace us. They certainly won't replace Helena, but the rest of us. Um, and of course, they brought this paper that says 47% of jobs including many lawyers' jobs, uh, will be lost uh, to machines. So that's the focus of our final seminar uh, in the coming series. And then in the next term, in Trinity term, 
we'll be focusing on citizen science. 22nd of May, Joe Stiglitz, the Nobel Laureate, uh, will be talking at lunchtime, details on our website, uh, and uh, Liam Byrne, the Shadow Minister for University Science and Skills, uh, on the 5th of June, and Lord Patton, the Chancellor of University, on the 4th of June. Here, yeah, all those details on our website. So thanks to you all for coming, and thanks to you, Helena, Love for being it. here today. <laughs>